We may be seated. Such a, a privilege and a joy to um, just sing praise to our, our Lord and Savior Jesus today and, and grateful to be with you. As, as Carla said, happy Father's Day to all of the dads in the room. Um, I am reminded the importance of dads and men as the head of our homes and um, just how important it is for, for us to, to lead through the strength and the grace that God gives us and to cultivate rhythms of discipleship in our home. So, so men, uh, thank you for how you serve with, within your homes. Extremely grateful for you fathers out there. If you're new to LifePoint, my name is Corey. I serve as the teaching pastor here. And, and I want to let you know, again, if, if you're new, there's some helpful resources available to you this, this morning. Uh, we've got message notes. We've got uh, upcoming coming events and, and a digital guest card and, and more available to you. You can access those by typing in lpguest.com into the web browser of your phone. That's lpguest.com. Or you can simply scan that QR code on the back of the chair in front of you and you can access those resources. If you're with us each and every week, I want to encourage you to go ahead and download the LifePoint app because you'll be able to get the message notes and all that other stuff a little bit more quickly that way. Last week, we kicked off our series, our summer series called Under the Sun. And we are in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes uh, in, in this series. And if you were with us and remember last week, or if you weren't with us last week, in chapter one, we were introduced to Solomon, the wisest man who, who ever lived, and his search for the meaning of life with everything that happens under the sun. And what we learned from him last week is that God has placed eternity in our hearts and that we cannot and will not find the eternal in the temporal things of this world. That there's nothing in and of itself under the sun as Solomon will repeat himself over and over again. No thing, no possession, no relationship, no experience that can, that can help us find the eternal in, in this world when it ultimately lies in Jesus Christ himself. And so we've kind of wrapped all that up into one big idea that we're carrying out each and every week in this series, and that is that, that God offers us a full life in an empty world. That God offers us a full life in an empty world. And so this morning as we, we continue on in the series, if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, or you've got your Bible app, I want to invite you to find Ecclesiastes chapter 2 with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's here in chapter 2 that we're going to dig into the details and the specifics of Solomon's quest to find meaning and contentment and enjoyment and delight in life under the sun. And it's in this chapter, Solomon continues to make life on earth his, his laboratory, if you will. And he uses his, his own life to experiment with things, looking for one thing after another and applying the wisdom God's given to him to try and find meaning in that which is under the sun. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Solomon records another one of these experiments, if you will. He says in, in verse 1, we can look at it together, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. It says, but behold, this also was vanity. Now, if you remember, Solomon has the means and the authority as the king and with all the, the riches that he has to do just about anything his heart desires. 
So he decides here to conduct this experiment to find the value of pleasure, to find the value of self-indulgence. Philosophers will call this hedonism. Hedonism is, is a devotion to pleasure as a way of life. It's a theory that pleasure or happiness is the highest good one could achieve in, in, in their life. And so Solomon was going to put this theory to the test. A theory that, that many people live by today. That, that the meaning of life is ultimately found in having more things, varied pleasures, entertainment, excitement. And it's here in verse 1 that, that Solomon says, hey, I'm going to test these things out. He says, I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. I'm going to tell myself, enjoy yourself with everything. And right at the onset, right after he says that, he lets us know the ultimate conclusion or the ultimate result of this experiment. He says, behold, this also was vanity. And if you remember from last week, vanity is meaningless. It's emptiness. That's what it means. And even though he, he tells us the result, right, right from the onset here, what he does in the following verses and what we're going to walk through this morning is, is how he explains how he came to this conclusion. All of the things that he tried to find meaning and pleasure. He says in verse 2 this, and again, begin, he begins to kind of lay these things out. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. The New King James Version says it like this. He says, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. In the midst of all these things, trying all these things, he says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He also searched how to lay hold of folly, he says, that he might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Verse 8, he says, he also sought singers, both men and women and many concubines in the, that were the delight of the sons of man. Solomon goes all in here. He tested out everything in life, jumping headfirst into this, this hedonistic, self-indulgent lifestyle, whether he says it was laughter or alcohol or entertainment or, or sex. Solomon went after it, the pursuit of happiness and things under the sun and pleasure. And he says in verse 3 that, hey, anything that someone can do in this short life that we have on earth, he said, I did it, I tried it, all of it. And as I read these verses... I don't know about you, but what the picture starts to come to my mind of Solomon, the king, sitting in his, his magnificent banquet hall, eating the best food, drinking the best wine, hosting the best party, the best entertainment, the who's who of the time were there, right? The celebrities, the comedians, right? The, the, the singers, they're all there. Everybody wants to be at Solomon's party, and he says he's got concubines there, women available for sexual pleasure everywhere. First Kings chapter 11 lets us know that Solomon had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. See, Solomon's pleasure-seeking, his self-indulgence here, it reminds me of what we see in our world today. That there are some, maybe many, celebrities Athletes, recording artists, powerful people, successful people seeking and living that same lifestyle. Those who, like Solomon, have, have the means to acquire whatever their heart desires and they, they go from party to party, entertainment event to entertainment event, one outlandish experience to the next 
with the best of the best and the who, who's who of, of today, seeking pleasure. Now, here's what I wonder. I don't, I don't want to jump and judge on all those people, but here's what I wonder. How many of those in Solomon's day, because I want to talk about us, right? How many of those in Solomon's day, right, his servants, his friends, or those onlookers, wished they could change places with Solomon? How many of them wished they could have and do and experience all that Solomon was doing? I wonder that because how many of us wish the same today with those that we look at? As we look and peer into the lives of those living the extravagant, pleasure-filled lifestyle, scrolling through their Instagram feeds, scrolling, scrolling through their, their TikTok and watching them on, on TV and social media, how many of us, if we're honest, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we're sitting there going, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could live that way. I wish that was, that was me. But there's a trap there. Because what no one around Solomon looking into his life from the outside didn't see, and what many of us don't see today, is that, that people are looking into those lifestyles, and though it seems like they have everything, what do we usually learn in the end? That they're, they're ultimately lonely. They're ultimately unhappy. They're ultimately empty, unsatisfied, trying to fill a void in their life that the things under the sun just won't satisfy which is why Solomon continues to repeat, I think, so we get it, right? Verse 1, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. In verse 11, he says there was nothing to be gained, that it was all just striving after the wind, chasing after the, the wind. And that's that phrase he continues to say. And so um, I'm not great at all these examples all the time, but this is what popped into to my head today, right? I had to make sure the worship team didn't, didn't play around with this thing, all right? Thinking about chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to grasp the wind? Right? I never tried to hold on to it, right? Like it reminded me of, yes, it's going to work, bubbles, okay? It reminded me of bubbles and why we got this one with batteries in it because I wasn't going to dip one of those things in and blow and nothing come out, right? Like I wasn't going to be that guy, okay? Here we go, bubbles. Everybody loves bubbles. Kids love bubbles. Adults love bubbles, all that kind of stuff, right? But what happens with bubbles? They eventually burst, whether on their own, watch these things stay here the whole message this morning. It's going to be terrible, right? I'm going to be stomping them out, all right? Okay? They eventually burst on, on their own. And what happens if you try to grab them and hold them in your hand? They, they, they break just the same. Here's, here's kind of the, the lesson that I think Solomon's trying to show us and repeat to us over and over again. It's this, that building a life only on seeking pleasure is bound to be disappointing in the end. Right? Notice the word only. Pleasure experiences are temporary. They will inevitably burst, whether on their own or whether we try to hold on to them and give them more meaning than they ultimately have. And there's a danger in this lifestyle that I think we need to talk about for just a second because here's the deal. If you continually seek pleasure to find meaning in your life, here's what happens, okay? enjoyment will decrease and the intensity of the pleasure needs to increase in order for those things to, to level out to find pleasure again. In other words, there's a, a law of diminishing return in seeking pleasure, that you need more and you need more and that there's gonna be little or no enjoyment in the end. And sadly, what we find out if we only seek pleasure is ultimately we're in bondage to something. And I'm gonna speak to you, right, from, from experience here. Because there was a time in my life during my college years where I sought all of this stuff. Now, 
I was a poor kid, right? I wasn't like Solomon with all the money, but I, I sought to indulge in everything I, I could. And let me just tell you, again, sharing from experience, right? Just like Solomon said, right, the more drinks, and I'm not going to argue the alcohol thing today. We can talk about that some other time, but I think you're going to get the heart of what I'm talking about. The more drinks one has, right, the less enjoyment they get out of it. And so what happens? There's a need for more. And there's a need for stronger and more and stronger, right? We put a nice word like tolerance, you know, your alcohol tolerance on it. But here's what happens. The result is no satisfaction. I need more. No satisfaction. I need more. And, and all of a sudden there's a bondage to something we didn't intend to be bonded to. Pornography is, is the same, right? One look leads to two, which leads to another site and then another site until it's a snowball effect and things are just out of, of control, and then we, a person finds himself engulfed in a situation where there's ultimately no satisfaction, just emptiness, and they soon find themselves in bondage to that sin, right? And we can substitute any example we want, drugs, gambling, money, fame. There's a principle that holds true over and over again, and it's this, that when, when pleasure alone is the center of life, the result will ultimately be unsatisfying and emptiness, could probably add bondage or, or leading us to a place we don't want to be in that. So this is all Solomon has, is indulging in to this point. And in verse 4, he continues on. It doesn't stop there for him. He says this. He said, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them. All kinds of fruit trees are there. He says, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Here Solomon moves to another area of life to find pleasure, the area of projects, the area of work, hoping to discover something that would make life worth living. He tried to, to give life meaning through the, the pleasure and the satisfaction that comes through building and organizing and improving one's environment. Verse 4 tells us that he, he had great works. He built houses. If we were to go back to 2 Chronicles, he actually built cities. He built the temple of God. It says here he built gardens and, and vineyards and orchards and forests and parks. He even built a water irrigation system, it says there. Not only did he have works, but he had workers. Verse 7, he says he had male and female. Some he, he purchased and some that were born in his own household. He had wealth. Of course he had wealth. He had wealth in flocks and herds of animals. He had wealth in possessions and he had wealth in gold and silver. There was so much money during Solomon's time. First Kings tells us that silver was of little or no value because gold was so abundant. This works kind of lifestyle. Now, I got to admit to you, like, I kind of identify with Solomon here because I'm a task-oriented guy, right? There, there brings me what, there's a lot of joy. Like, if I see that empty checkbox and I get to put that check in there and it's done, like, man, I am a happy boy, let me tell you that. Like, I love organizing things. I love getting things in, in, in order. My wife and kids will tell you, sometimes Kelly's like, get out of my kitchen, 
It's my kitchen. You don't need to organize that drawer. You don't need to organize that cupboard, right? We, we have a cupboard where we've got these plastic cups in. They're blue and they're red and they're green. And I just can't help myself sometimes. The red got to go with the red and the green got to go with the green and the blue got to go with blue. And my boys go in there and go, ha, ha, and they switch it all up, right? And they're like, how does that make you feel, dad, right? And I'm just like, okay, I'm good, I'm good, you know? Why? Right, here's what Solomon found, and just here's the truth, right? There is pleasure in, in working, right? He, he shares with us in those verses that his, his, his heart found pleasure in all of his toil. But as he repeats over and over again, the vanity, the chasing after the wind, he's telling us, here's what happens when the task was finished. That too, that satisfaction too vanished, he said, hey, there was some, there was some pleasure in that, that journey, but the destination lacked ultimate satisfaction. There's a quote from Henry Ward Beecher that says this, and I, I liked it, and I think it was relevant for where we're at right now. He says, success is full of promise until men get it, and then it's last year's nest from which the birds have flown. Many times we can become a workaholic trying to find meaning trying to escape ourselves or to achieve approval, but we, we find in the end, wow, that, there's a disappointment there. I'm ultimately not satisfied there either. I remember growing up, there was this, this phrase, and I don't hear it as much today, but I heard it a lot growing up, and it was this phrase that he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't know if you've ever heard that, right? It used to be on bumper stickers. Folks would flaunt that. He who dies with the most toys wins. But as I've gotten older, I've seen the foolishness of that statement and the reality and the truth of another and that statement is, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Solomon, his experiment helps us understand why, why so many times successful people can be unhappy still and not find meaning. What he teaches us here in these verses is that work alone cannot satisfy the human heart no matter how successful that work may be. And he goes on in verse 9 and he kind of puts a bow on things for us and lets us know where this experiment kind of came to a head. And he says in verse 9, So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And he says that was my reward. My, my ultimate reward as I had pleasure for a little bit but I didn't get anything after it. Verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. Here he's going to tell us. All the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity. It was all striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is Solomon's final analysis of his pleasure experiment here in chapter 2. Solomon's accomplishments and his indulgences, he lets us know, hey, there, there, something did come from him. He says in verse 9, he became great and he surpassed everyone before him. He got to a place of prominence. And he tells us that he actually achieved whatever meaning he could find in pleasure and in wealth and in intellect and in fame. And in all of it, Solomon says, guess what? I didn't really even lose my mind with it. I had all of the wisdom that God gave me. That I had the ability to assess true meaning and fulfillment. We could say that Solomon lived this portion of his life as a hedonist, but as an intelligent one. In doing so, 
Solomon gets to the end of all of it, examines his life, the life he lived for pleasure and all that he got out of it, and he comes to the conclusion that there is no enduring, eternal sense of meaning to life that comes from living for earthly pleasures and accomplishments. This is where Solomon takes us in chapter 2. And so I started thinking and praying this week, like how do, we, how do we wrap things up? What's the application for us today? Because we're in this series for like seven weeks and Solomon's going to continue to go through these experiments and show us like we've talked about that it's all vanity and it's all meaningless. And, and I got to tell you, I don't know about you, I love y'all, but like I don't want to stand up here for seven weeks and just say, don't live this way, don't live this way. Don't live this way. That can't be the end of every message for seven weeks, right? Solomon makes it clear, I think, over and over again. Don't live this way. So I was praying about what, what do we practically take from today? What's the application for us today? And, and I think it's really two things. It's two things. One, the first one is this, that I think we need to answer. I find myself wondering this I, I, as I was studying and going through. Is pleasure wrong? That's the first thing that I think we need to understand. Is pleasure wrong? Is having nice things and experiencing nice things and going to new places and enjoying good food and enjoying company, is laughing wrong? Is being successful wrong? Is having money or a lot of money wrong? Is it wrong to organize things or to oversee projects or to build a business or to have a a work staff? Is, Is that all wrong? Does God not want us to have these things? Should we just avoid pleasure altogether? I think the short answer for us is, no. And you say, well, how, how can you say no? Where did you come to that conclusion? I'm just going to take us to one verse and then pop around really uh, a little bit. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, not, not on the screen. You could look it up on your own. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul, the apostle Paul, is writing to a young Timothy who is in the ministry. And he says, God richly provides us with everything, watch this, to enjoy saying, Timothy, I want you to enjoy all that God has provided, and God has provided everything, your life, your accomplishments, the success you have. Enjoy it. And if we were to kind of go through Scripture and, and like look at some of the things Solomon did today, if we look at work, right, we go back to the, the very beginning. We go back to Genesis, the creation of kind of all things. God creates mankind and gives them the responsibility of what? To work, to till the ground, to subdue the earth. Right? This is kind of how we say it. Work was good. Work didn't become labor until sin entered the world. And then, then work became labor. So God creates work for us to enjoy. At the same time, God creates, in that Genesis account, he creates sex and he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. In Proverbs, we learn that laughter is good. It says the joyful heart is good medicine. Hey, something I forget a lot of times that I think we need to remember is, you know, Jesus laughed, right? He smiled. We read sometimes through the New Testament like this dude was just serious the whole time. In, that, in, in, in doing life with his disciples, they were going to laugh. They were going to joke. They were going to have a good time. They're going to smile with each other. So can we. What about celebrating? What about throwing a party? Is this party a good? Well, Paul in Romans tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Music is good. James says, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. That same verse we just talked about a moment ago where Paul's talking to Timothy and how God has provided us everything to enjoy. He also says this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to sell their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm going to talk about the, that, those verses just for a second here, but I want us to notice what isn't there. There's no condemnation of the person who has money. There's no condemnation for the person who is rich. After all, who gave Solomon his riches? God, right? But what Paul does say in those things, if you do have money, if you are rich, and I could make the argument for today for us living in America, how rich we really, really are, even those of us who don't have a lot of money, how rich we really, really are. But Paul says, hey, if you've got money, don't make it an idol. Don't put it above God. If you've got money, don't be haughty and don't be arrogant and don't act superior to those around you. If you've got money, enjoy the fruit of your labor, labor, but use your riches for good. He says, be generous sharing with others around you. He says, use them to store up the eternal because that's where true life is. And that's where I think the key is for us today in dealing with pleasure in our lives. It's this, that having pleasure, having things, having money, enjoying life, whatever it might be, it's not wrong to have those things as long as those things have their proper place and rank in our lives. As long as those things are used in the proper context. As long as we give God the glory for what we have and as long as we use what he has given us for the eternal, right? So I put it like this in our notes today. We are to be channels and not reservoirs. That the greatest joy comes when we share God's pleasures with others. It's sitting here and realizing that God's not sitting in heaven just trying to spoil everybody's good time and making sure nobody laughs and nobody smiles. But that God has given us everything to enjoy. But we're to be good stewards of what he's been given to us. And we're to leverage all that we have, our experiences, including the pleasure of this life for his kingdom and for his glory. So what's that mean? Just to put it plainly so we really get it today. Have that party, but do so in a way that glorifies God. Maybe leverage it of how do I reach my neighbors? How do I reach my family? How do I show them Christ through rejoicing in what we're celebrating? It means be successful. Enjoy that success. But how do you realize that success only came to you through God and you give him glory for what he's given you? It means go be that great business person. Rock that out, but leverage it for the kingdom. It means go enjoy sex, but within its proper context of marriage between one man and one wife. It means go and make as much money as you possibly can. Provide for your family. Have a good time with it. Take care of those you love, but be a good steward with it. Be generous with it. Be generous with it so that you may promote and advance the kingdom of God forward. Be a channel, be a conduit, not a reservoir with those things. Sharing the pleasures that God has given us, right, without sinning and all that kind of stuff. Sharing it with others for his good and for his glory. So that's the first thing, right, is, is pleasure wrong? Hopefully I've answered that well today. The second thing the Lord brought to mind as, as we close which I think is really an action step for all of us as we, we leave today, is this. 
We must engage those who are wrongly seeking pleasure in this world. We must engage those who are wrongly seeking pleasure in the, this world. And that might seem like, wow, that's kind of coming out of left field regarding what we talked to you today. But again, as I was driving in and praying, I'm like, Lord, where do, we, where do we land the plane today? And he continually just brought the word engage to mind. Engage. And I think here's why. Because I don't know about you, I'll just speak from my perspective, but as I look out on the world today and I look out on people today, things are more messed up and crazy than I've ever seen in my life, and that's just putting it kind of plainly and nicely, right? And here's where I've been convicted and kind of what I've been looking at as I look out upon the world today. It seems like no one can have a civilized conversation anymore, right? Especially with someone who, who they disagree with. There's an automatic response these days of if you don't disagree or, or we don't get a, you know, come to the same conclusion on things, I'm just going to shame you, I'm going to yell at you, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to cancel you, I'm going to berate you, and I'm going to completely avoid you for the rest of my life, especially if you're different than me, especially if you disagree with me. And I, I'm going to tell us that's a two-way street today. I don't just see non-Christians doing that. I see Christians responding and acting that way. Why share that? Why is that important? Because as a Christian myself, here's what I'm reminded. That I, that we, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, are surrounded by and will continue to be surrounded by those seeking and lost in and promoting and exalting a self-indulgent lifestyle. This is not our home. Right? We, we're, we're playing an away game. This isn't home turf. So we're going to be in a world that lives just like Solomon lived today, seeking meaning in all those things. But here's where I'm challenged as a Christ follower. The question for us is, what's my response to that? And here's what I was reminded of this week. That it's not my job to, to judge everyone's heart or to ridicule them or to shame them or to disgrace or distance or disassociate with them or Anybody that's lost, and I'll say it like this, anybody that's lost in the vanity and the meaningless and the foolishness of seeking ultimate pleasure in this world. Instead, it's this. I, we, are to engage. We're to engage. And don't mishear me on this one. I don't, you don't need to email me this week, right? I'm not standing here condoning sin, participating in sin, or turning a blind eye to anything, or accepting that which is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I am, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying love the sinner, hate the sin. Move forward full of grace and full of truth. Sometimes, you know what that requires for us? We have to remove the log from our own eye before we go remove the speck from somebody else's. I'm talking about standing on the word of God and being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm calling sin, sin. Don't be ashamed of that. But I'm also talking about being in the world and not of the world. I'm talking about engaging those who are lost in the vanity of this world just like Jesus did and does. Because we forget so many times. Jesus engaged with who? The sinners, the tax collectors, the outcasts, those labeled. I'm reminded that he stood between the prostitute and the one who was going those who were going to stone her. And I'm reminded that today Jesus still runs toward and to those who are lost in this world. After all, doesn't that describe every Christian's salvation story? That Jesus engaged us in our lost and broken state to seek and to save us. 
And the results are, from Jesus engaging us, is that we've got forgiveness of our sins. We've got new life. We've got eternal life. We've got life abundantly in him because, again, he is the eternal. He is what we are ultimately looking for, Jesus. And we must do the same today. Put it like this, that we are on mission to engage people and not pleasure. Let's not lose our sights on that today. Right? Again, enjoy all that God's given to you. But remember, that's not ultimately why you're here. We are here to engage in the mission of reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because I shared with you just a bit those college years when I indulged in all that stuff. And I've shared this story before, but there was, there was a gentleman who engaged me right where I was at. And it changed the trajectory of my life. He came with grace and he came with truth and he pointed me towards Jesus. He called sin, sin in my life, but he engaged with me. He didn't participate in any of it. He didn't condone any of it, but he just kept pointing me to Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. So as we wrap up this morning, what does Jesus, who does Jesus want you to engage with today? As you sit here right now, what names are, are the Holy Spirit bringing, is the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Is it somebody you've written off? Is it somebody that has just completely ticked you off? Who do you need to engage? Is there somebody you've been sitting back and going, oh, I cannot believe how they're living? Maybe you need to go reach out to them and show them Christ. Who, who in your life, where do, you, where do you need to love the sinner yet hate the sin? Is there anything in your life that if you walk away from today, the Holy Spirit's just saying, you've got a log in your own eye and I can't use you to go reach them to get the speck out of theirs until you remove that log in your own eye. Let's repent and deal with some of our own junk today. What does it look like to speak grace and truth in love to someone? What does it look like for us to be in the world yet not of the world because it's not going away? How do you become a, a channel and a conduit for Jesus, for the kingdom, in engaging people for him? And I close with, with this. It just reminds me of something my friend Keith Yoder told me last week. He goes, man, everything we're talking about just reminds me of this. Again, this is, this is where we're close. We're gonna close, we're, and I'm done. In this world, right, God has so much better for us. God has something so much better for us. Let's not settle for the counterfeit. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. And God, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is challenging, sobering, revealing, and convicting and Lord, it does point to, at times, a, a lifestyle that we should not live and that Solomon tells us brings us no meaning and no ultimate satisfaction. So I pray today by your spirit that you would show us any area in our life where we're stuck in that kind of lifestyle or if there's something in our lives we're trying to find meaning and it takes rank above you. Lord, help us to Help us to demote those things and put you at the top. That you would have priority and preeminence in our lives. And God, today as we, we leave, 
Help us to be a people like Jesus, engaging a lost and a broken world. Engaging those who are searching for something and and they don't even know what they're searching for and they're just looking in all the wrong places. They're trying to fill that hole in their heart, that void in their life. And what they're really looking for is Jesus. Remind us that, that you have us where you have us on purpose in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and amongst our family members. And so as we look around, help us not to turn a blind eye. Help us not to try and judge someone's heart or, or distance ourselves from them. Help us to engage with with them to show them Jesus for their eternity's sake so they can find ultimate meaning not in the things of this world but in your son who gave his life for us for the forgiveness of sins who rose from the grave so that we can have a new life a different life an eternal life For those of us that have that today, Lord, we praise you for it. We thank you for it. For those of us who may not have that eternal life, I pray that we would turn toward you, Jesus, putting our faith and our trust in you alone, that we would believe in you, that you came and you died and you rose again. And we would seek you and ask you to come into our lives so we chase after you and seek our eyes and set our eyes on you and you alone. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. So as we sing and as we close, we give you that praise. In Jesus' name we pray.